Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Director at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Insight is Capital. My guests today are BMO Global Asset Management's Jeffrey Schell and Lillian Ferndrieger. Jeffrey is Head of Alternatives, Commercial ESG and Innovation from BMO Global Asset Management, and Lillian is Director of Alternatives Distribution at BMO Global Asset Management. Jeff, Lillian, welcome and Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm excited for our conversation. Today, we're going to delve into the realm of private market investing, a vital instrument for portfolio diversification that promises attractive risk-adjusted returns. These markets offer an entrance into asset classes and strategies that were previously largely inaccessible territory in the public domain. Moreover, the defining features of private markets, their risk-return profiles, stand as a powerful key to unlock the full potential of a private wealth portfolio. A look back in time reveals the compelling performance of private markets as they have consistently outshone public markets, becoming a beacon of wealth accumulation and differentiated return stream. In recent times, this asset class has been winning hearts, transitioning from its long-standing institutional clientele to captivate high net worth individuals, the segment that's been growing the fastest. Now we're witnessing an exciting shift, often referred to as the democratization of access. This transformation marks a significant stride for the wealth management industry as it throws open the doors to a broad suite of previously inaccessible specialized strategies within private equity, private debt, real estate, infrastructure, and other real assets. The allure of reduced minimum tickets, enhanced transparency in reporting, and lower fees adds to the appeal of these markets. But perhaps the most enticing advantage of this democratization is the boon it provides to private wealth. It serves as the final puzzle piece in portfolio construction, enabling clients to harness an all-encompassing asset allocation in private market sub-strategies. This allows for portfolio diversification, enhanced returns, volatility reduction, and crucially, a shield against inflation. Today, we're going to delve deeper into these fascinating dynamics of private market investing. Let's get started. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jeff, Lillian, again, I, I know I've already said it, but it's wonderful to have you. And um, I think to uh, begin... Please tell us about the arcs of your respective careers, how you got into the business in the first place, and what's got you tap dancing into work these days. Lily, why don't you start <laughs> off? Because the, the, <laughs> the arc of your career is a lot more sensible and straightforward <laughs> than the, uh, the arc of mine. Fair enough. Yes. So my background has been in uh, wealth throughout my entire career just starting as working uh, as an assistant to a financial planner right out of school. Uh, from there, I ended up learning just what advisors need to be able to run their books of business, but jumped over into the sales side, onto the wholesale side at a, a smaller a smaller firm back in the day that was all about uh, closed-end deals and, and commodities. Uh, from there, I jumped over into another um, asset manager where it was uh, segregated funds and mutual funds, and then from there into sales management. Um, most recently, uh, my experience was over at a uh, hedge fund manager doing national accounts. And so what that means is trying to get products, private markets products, approved at the different uh, dealers across Canada. And there's where I learned the, um, the need for education and how exciting this area is because it is not that easily accessible. So when the opportunity at BMO arose to be part of Jeff's team, to be able to bring private markets and alternative investments through a bank manufacturer, I had to jump at the chance. And of course, to work with Jeff. <laughs> well, Your turn, well, Jeff. That's quite, a, that's quite a layup to you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we, we, I think we, we all feel very fortunate that Lillian chose to join us around a year ago uh, to help build up this business. Uh, my background is, is highly varied. 
I grew up in technology. I really grew up in management consulting. I had a variety of different experiences. Joined the bank uh, 12, 13 years ago in corporate strategy. Uh, spent the majority of my time at the bank in BMO Capital Markets. Um, most recently, I was responsible for financial institutions. And uh, in doing so, supported a lot of private markets players and got to know their businesses and different ways that we can support them. So around that time, uh, BMO made a, a significant decision to refocus our asset management business on Canada and to really think ahead in, in what we want our product self to look like, what we want our solution to look like uh, to delight our customers for many years to come. And so private markets was a big, uh, a, I would say, gap in our portfolio. And it's really been a big gap in the portfolios of Canadian high net worth investors and uh, the opportunity to come over and, and to build a team with great people like Lillian uh, to not only select and create great products, but to also position them uh, in a way where people really understand the benefits and they can apply them in ways that institutions in Canada and really across the world have been doing for decades. Excellent. Thank you. So we're, we're going to talk about private markets today. Until, until recently, private market assets have only been accessible to institutional and ultra high net worth or accredited investors. Um, they've become more widely available now uh, to uh, an increasing uh, set of investors. Why do private market assets continue to appeal so much to the wealthiest of investors and institutional investors? The wealthiest investors um, often made their wealth or created their wealth through private markets. So a lot of the high net worth, ultra high net worth segment in Canada um, became that way through entrepreneurial activities. And those right. activities generally don't trade publicly. So there's a, there's a inherent understanding of private markets that I think... Um, start off with it with a pretty compelling appeal. And when you talk to many of business, business owners about their choices, their investment choices, their best investment choice is often the thing that they're most familiar with, which is putting more money or more resources into the company that they've built into an industry that they really understand. And so to have the opportunity to take some of their wealth and then to allocate that to other business owners uh, in a way where you've got professional managers who know exactly how to create value to guide them to great outcomes. That's a very compelling proposition. And so, you know, our belief is that the ultra high net worth were presented with it before others, that there was a lot of focus on education and there's more of an inherent understanding of the private markets or privately held uh, companies than, than maybe we would see more broadly. And I think too, yeah. that there has been, um, and the shift when it comes to the acceptance behind private markets and understanding what they actually are. Um, we invest as Canadians in our pension plan um, and know it as the maple model across the street and across the world, um, about over 50% private markets in CPP. Um, we already are investors in there. It's just getting that access and trying to find a way to do it individually that has been lacking um, up until now. It, I think a part of it also has to do with the naming convention. Like people have referred to them as alternatives. Alternative gives you the sense that they're fringy or they're somehow a deviation from the norm. But when you actually unpack what alternatives are, you end up in the spot uh, where you started, Pierre, when you're describing private markets. Like right. You can really do some amazing things as a private owner that are harder to do as a public owner. And when you look at the span of, of, uh, private ownership, even if we just start off with companies, so looking at the private equity space, uh, in the U.S., 85% of companies that have over $100 million of revenue are privately held. So you right. actually get, it's not a fringe part of the market. It, in fact, it is more representative of the real economy, you know, some might argue, than, uh, than publicly traded. And so to not have that within your portfolio does create a pretty significant uh, gap and and when you do own it and you own it with professional management through private equity structures, you start to enjoy the benefits that uh, pension plans and other professional managers have have enjoyed for years. And that's only one part of it. That's private equity. Yeah. And then you've got you know private credit that finances 
in, in large part, private equity. It, it could include other things too, but uh, in large part, finances, uh, uh, private equity in ways that, um, again, you've got professional managers who really understand how to underwrite credit risk. And they've grown in a space that I won't say the banks have, have abandoned, but because of the uh, regulatory pressures, banks have been less inclined to participate. So you've got private equity that requires financing that's helped breed a very exciting market in, in, uh, in private credit. And then the other two pieces that you mentioned, um, real estate and, uh, and infrastructure, also amazing things to own privately relative to, to the public option. Like if we talk about real estate, um, private ownership allows for the model where you can you know, buy buildings, you can improve the buildings, and then you could sell them at some point in the future. The things that many people do as DIY investors and buying property, and if they've got the expertise to do it themselves, the, the public markets version of that reads, it, it, it doesn't allow for the same amount of improvement and value creation. It's more about an efficient way to buy a stabilized asset that produces great income. And then turning to, to infrastructure, again, owning it privately allows you to really stretch out your time horizon as an owner and to invest in the types of platforms that you can grow by adding more solar panels or more electrical transmission capacity to not only uh, benefit from really stable cash flows, but also to get a lot of value appreciation. So anyway, all of this to say is that private markets, it's not fringy. It's a really, right. really big part of the economy and owning something privately versus owning it publicly allows you to do some really amazing things that create value, that produce uh, a strong income and can help really diversify versus public markets holding. I like calling that the four basic food groups of private markets. <laughs> well, I think it's, I, you know, two points. One, uh, to Lillian's point about CPP being a substantial investor in private markets, um, you know, behind the scenes, I think, you know, you could also, you could also extend that to, you know, investors, famous investors like, uh, uh, Swenson, David Swenson at Yale Endowment, who sort of, you know, pioneered a lot of the entry into private equity and private markets in, in, in the Yale Endowment itself. Um, but, uh, I think it's worth noting that wealthy investors, as much as anyone else like to stay that way. And, you know, they like to stay wealthy. You know, these solutions, um, these private markets solutions, private equity, private debt, uh, real estate infrastructure, they, they have been structurally designed, first of all, to cater to that, that audience of investors historically. But they're also structurally designed to be less risky and less volatile than public markets. That's really one of the great misperceptions uh, you know, institutions, endowments, and wealthy investors understand these assets better. And that's to your point, uh, Jeff, about, you know, entrepreneurs being, you know, the, not only the, you know, the bearers of, of, of the high net worth of, of high net wealth in, in Canada and elsewhere. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, you understand these assets, you understand how these assets work. You understand how a business works at a basic level and even at a, at a very granular level, you're able to look at financial statements and, and reporting and make a, and, and make a personal assessment of those assets, um, having, you know, with the experience of having been an entrepreneur, um, you know, running your own business, running your own family, family business or empire, you, you know, you have, you have the ability to that. And so, so my, I, just to cap off my point. Um, wealthy investors want to be able to participate in the ownership of assets where there is more control, not less control over what happens in terms of management, perhaps uh, valuations and volatility, right? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, really important point. Like when you buy into a private structure and you do it in a fund format, you typically have very seasoned management that with very tried and tested value creation plans, taking companies, buying them, turning them from good to great. And the way that they do it, uh, not only do they have the value creation programs, they've got access to 
a deep roster of advisors. And those advisors will take a very active role in helping guide those companies. It's not necessarily a comfortable spot to be as a business owner that's been acquired by a private manager, um, but it's one in which you know, time has shown that you can, you can create an awful lot of value um, you know, through a variety of different mechanisms. The, the three main categories of value creation that we have seen over the last 20 years in private equity, I'm only talking about private equity right now, um, are financial engineering where seasoned managers will look at what they've, what they've purchased and they'll use their buying power and their financial wherewithal to optimize the balance sheet. Um, another major source of value creation has been that as interest rates have been as low as they've been, if you're able to create more income from improving the performance of a company, that income gets valued with very it, it, the high multiples that just keep increasing. And then the third is they fundamentally getting into that company using your advisory network, using your value creation um, um, capabilities to actually improve the underlying performance. Our view is that for the next decade or so, it's pretty hard to, to project interest rates, but let's just assume that they stay elevated. If they do, the financial engineering is unlikely to be a major source of value creation from, from private ownership. Right. Um, we certainly don't think that multiples are going to expand. We think they're going to contract. Um, and so our focus and is, is on um, managers have got a great track record choosing very good companies and then helping guide them to be even better. And, and that, you know, from a, a, um, a due diligence standpoint, we spend much more time on the, uh, on the, third, the third track than we would uh, in other business environments. And that, that third track is something that doesn't exist in mutual funds or ETFs or other investments. Yeah. You, you, you have a lot more, you know, because you, you're directly interacting with the businesses that you own yeah, I, in, I, private, in private markets, right? So you have the, you have portfolio management, then you've got the, this deep bench of advisors, and then you have the actual interaction between the, the manager, the portfolio manager, the deep bench and the proprietor, the owner of the business or the controlling interests of the business. In, in that, that active ownership um, yeah. is something that you just don't see having as much influence in public markets. If you look at uh, public market governance, uh, it tends to, and of course it varies, but it tends to be more on the risk management side than on the value creation side. Where in in uh, in private markets, you certainly see a lot of focus on value creation and a ton of alignment of, of interest between the manager that's representing the investors. They're often also uh, investors in the uh, in the outcomes of that company. But I, I should I, and I you should see have... and you see you see companies. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt no, you, no, no. but but you, you see companies sometimes go from being public publicly traded businesses going private. And, I, and that's for the very reason that, that you're, that you're talking is when you have, when you have a, a large swath of publicly, public ownership, publicly traded ownership, not public ownership, but publicly traded ownership, um, there, unless some, some kind of activism takes place, uh, you know, on the board, uh, through proxy fights and things, which we do see, I mean, it, it's just, you don't have to go through that in private, in private markets. That's right. It happens. It happens naturally. You know that naturally the the controlling interests or the owners of of the private companies are going to interact with their private market owners and that, that's a solve great the point. problems internally without having to go through this whole shareholder proxy voting fight that that often happens with a lot of companies when things aren't going the way shareholders like. And that's it, a, it happens more, far more quietly in the private market. In the, in the public market, you, you're really believing in the management team. And in, in private markets, you're really believing in the value creation team. So it's a little bit different of a spin on, on how, you, uh, how you select uh, companies. We, of course, at Global Asset Management are big believers in, in public markets. And we really like the way that public and private markets could complement each other. Uh, there's a study that uh, that one of our friends, J.P. Morgan, did 
a number of years ago that looked at what happens if you've got a portfolio that's got 80% equities and 20% debt, uh, 60-40, the traditional portfolio, 40-60, the other way around. And then you you add in 20% alternatives. So you end up rebalancing, creating a bit of space, adding in 20% alternatives. And they also use more of a of a private market definition that you've been using, Pierre. So the private equity, yeah. private credit, and then uh, in real assets. And you also have a great chart for your previous point that I didn't cover off, which was that that there's, you know, in terms of companies in uh, with over 100 million in revenue, um, there's eight times more private companies with over 100 million in revenue than there are publicly traded businesses. That, that's right. And what those right, which is the, the 85, 80, 85 or 87 percent of the market of, of businesses with revenue over 100 million is private. That, that's right. And, and that, the, the two punchlines from those charts would be uh, from from the one that shows the, the private ownership that if you really want to have diversified access to the real economy, you probably want to have private markets in there. And then, it, it, particularly on the equity side, I think the, the punchline from the asset allocation chart is that by thoughtfully including private markets in your portfolio, you're likely to reduce risk over time and also improve um, the return. So that it kind of it kind of reminds me you know, back to Lillian's point about CPP. You know, Canada is three percent of the global economy, right? In terms of market capitalization. So, you know, if, if you have 40, 50, 60% of your assets in Canadian equity markets, um, you know, you're, you're completely blowing out. I mean, the overweight of, of, uh, you know, home country bias, right. And, and I mean, the ratios, uh, a little bit higher for private versus public, but, uh, it, it reminds me of that same diversification mantra that was, you know, that, that, that continues to circulate, which is, you know, why would you invest so much of your wealth in one geographical region or one country and not look at the rest of the world or, or the world of opportunities? And that's the same thing here is that you have 13% of, uh, the, just speaking of the U.S., of course, you have 13% of the U.S., economy in terms of business is publicly traded companies, 87% of it is private. How could you not look at, at private? And I think, I think it's not that people haven't looked, it's that it was inaccessible. Yeah, and I think if you that weren't of a certain strata or wealth, you couldn't, or you weren't an endowment or an institution, you couldn't, you could not look at those because you couldn't have, you know, there wasn't enough money in your portfolio to allocate to those uh, you know, those assets, right? So I think and that's the just, exciting shift that's happening right now, yeah. Pierre, is the fact that advisors are now looking at the way that they're building their portfolios differently. Back to the same idea, if diversification is king, how can you be diversified without looking to the private markets and knowing right. how to use the private markets in your portfolio to be able to bring down um, the risk and increase your return to what uh, Jeff was talking about from our charts from JP Morgan is really important. And so the way that we look at private markets is we put them into three buckets on what they can do for a portfolio. So we're either looking for a return enhancer, right? So that's where our private equity stuff would start to come in. Then we look at income generator, right? So our private credit, perhaps our, our real estate. And then finally, we look at more a risk mitigation or diversifier in general. And so we bring that all together into modern portfolio theory. And you have all these new tools that advisors now have at their disposal in constructs that we're now providing for them to be able to build really great portfolios. And it's just through education and through awareness that they now have this access. That's what our mission is right now is to, is to pound the table and get people yeah. to start looking at private markets. Well, and that's why, that's why we're having this, this discussion today. Um, I, I liked your point. Uh, thank you, Lillian. That, that was great. Um, your point, uh, Jeff, on you know all private market assets being sort of grouped in with alternatives and and how you know that leads to a lot of misperceptions or misjudgments about what they are or or you know what the correct you know taxonomy should be for for private markets i think 
I think, um, you know, why, why don't you talk about what the difference is between, you know, liquid alternatives and private market assets? Because there's some there's some key differences to bear in mind, right? Yeah, when you when you use the broad topic of alternatives, you could be referring to liquid alternatives. You could be referring to hedge funds. You could be referring to collectible. You could be referring to people's private real estate holdings. You could be talking about crypto. Um, it, it's such a broad space, but it's really hard to get comfortable knowing what it is you would be buying and how you would fit it into a portfolio like Lillian just described. Right. And and that's why we like the, the, the more narrower version, the private market version. Um, there's certainly some very compelling uh, liquid alternative strategies, which really, um, at the core of it, is using some more sophisticated techniques in order to be able to isolate um, risk and either put more of it on or take less of it. Um, that is not our focus right now. Our focus is trying to broaden investors' access to the very huge, uh, significant part of the real economy that currently isn't investable. And our approach to doing it uh, is um, twofold. We look at what our advantages are as BMO Financial Group. And the the when people think about BMO, they think about a bank. When they think about a bank, they think about deposits and loans and maybe, you know, other banking-related products. The loan portion of our bank is huge, and our track record is fantastic as a commercial underwriter. Um, we are, you know, in a, a very special group of Canadian banks who are known as being um, uh, very shrewd stewards of capital, very smart uh, underwriters. And so a big portion of what we're doing to give access to people uh, in ways that they wouldn't otherwise have to sophisticated investment products is using our commercial underwriting as the basis to design some pretty special products. And so there should be a look forward to, to more solutions coming from uh, BMO in the coming year with the theme of giving investors access to the bank underwriting expertise. Outside of that, um, what Lillian and I and the rest of the team do is we, we, we look across different managers that have capabilities we could never create ourselves. Uh, maybe they've got an expertise in investing in, in technology. Georgian is a good example. We partnered with Georgian, uh, one of Canada's uh, 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 you know, best-known uh, um, technology investors to design an access vehicle um, for Canadian high-net-worth investors. Um, but but our our scope of reviewing other solutions is global, and we spend a lot of time with other managers. And once we have a strategy, we think about how do we deliver it in ways that will get through some of the hurdles that people have historically had to buying private markets products. And so we are quite excited about a product that we are going to be bringing to market um, early summer. And that product provides diversified access to private equity, private credit, real assets, so some real estate, right. lots of infrastructure, um, through a single vehicle, a single vehicle. And you're able to buy that vehicle when it makes sense for you. So you don't have to wait for them to be in market raising funds. You can buy when it's the right time for you to buy. And you do, although we don't suggest that you hold it for a short period of time, you do have the flexibility to be able to sell when it makes the most sense for you. Right. So you get access to those four food groups that Lillian talked about. In that access, it's not that 3% that you talked about in Canada. It's the 97% outside of right. Canada. So in the spirit of choosing a partner who has capabilities, we don't. They've got almost 2,000 professionals around the world looking for great opportunities. They've got portfolio management where you're, they're able to see every single deal in the network and choose the ones that work the best for the Canadian investor. And we are working hand in glove with them to design, uh, and, and we did to design a solution that we think really is going to be um, a, a special complement to, uh, to the portfolios of many Canadian investors. Amazing. Um, so uh, you have a suite of private market assets in place and you call them one, one, one grouping of those assets is called is core. 
and right. the other is octane, right? So how how does that work? So, uh, so going back to to Lillian to Lillian's uh, comment, the way that you build a portfolio is so highly customized, and, and investment advisors know this better than anyone that the needs of investors are going to vary. So those who are looking for a little bit more octane in their portfolio would focus more on return enhancers. Those who are looking for more stability of, of income, well, we've got income-related solutions. Those are going to be credit-oriented, or as Lillian said, um, you know, infrastructure or real estate, where you've got long-run contracted cash flows. And then you have your diversifiers, the things that if you're primarily invested in Canada, they give you access outside of Canada. But one of the magical things about private markets is you can create diversification benefits without sacrificing on yield. So for a standard, um, and I know there's no such thing, and, and I'm, I'm in, the, I'm in the, some uncomfortable ground here, but for a typical 60-40 <laughs> investor right. who's looking for a balanced solution, we would overweight a diversifier. We would have that as the core within their portfolio. You know, could be, uh, in, let's say, two-thirds of their private market allocation. And then we would look with satellite strategy, so complements to the core, to be able to get that extra thing that investors are looking for. Maybe they want a bit more income, so we would dial up the income uh, portion of the sleeve. Maybe they're looking for octane, and then we would dial up the return enhancers. Right. And it's really those three building blocks that that uh, advisors ought to be thinking about in order to create portfolios that give you the benefits of, uh, of private markets. We are very much in favor of having a core solution that allows you to buy when you want to buy and sell um, when most appropriate for the, for the investor. What we have found, Lillian and, and, and I and, and the rest of the team, Lillian, would, of course, have experienced this before, before I would, based on her experience with, with advisors and, and with investors. What we have found is, is really um, changing is, is advisors are having more discussions with their clients and understanding more about their preferences. Um, in an environment like this, where it's really hard to predict what the next period of time is going to look like from an equity standpoint, really hard to predict interest rates and what they're going to generate, there's even more of a sense from people who grew up in businesses, family-owned businesses, or um, uh, you know, made their money in private markets, to want to invest more in the thing that they know and less in the thing that they don't, that's moving in ways that are hard to understand. And so we're finding that advisors are having more um, open discussions with their investor clients who are asking about private markets. And they're, they're actually finding that like when you position it as this is a scaled way to do the thing that you have been doing, your family's been doing for generations, that right. there, there's not only recognition of why that's a beneficial thing to do with a portfolio, there's quite a deep attraction. And within that attraction, we're actually finding that people who might have been interested in investing in technology, but they, you know, it's so hard to follow what's happening when you invest in technology. They're interested in maybe not the hype assets, maybe they're interested in more of the infrastructure that ends up supporting today right. and tomorrow's technology, today and tomorrow's economy. And that's part of how we chose the strategy that we led off into the tech space. You're dealing with um, North American, largely North American software companies. That's great who they invest in, whose customers are also businesses. So again, not hype assets. They, they're creating uh, products that are valuable to the economy. And those products are in spaces like cybersecurity and in in spaces like industrial automation, where we know there's going to be natural growth as the economy right. continues to be rewired with zeros, uh, zeros and ones as opposed to, you know, uh, steel and rubber. It, it, and in, in a format where they've known these companies for a long time, they've established their place in the market. It, a lot of investors who have an interest in technology, but they found that found the space daunting find the the vehicle and the manager that we've put in front of them to be quite a compelling way to, you know, have fun with their investing right. and also expect the type of octane that you get out of uh, out of uh, return enhancers. 
Yeah. So that, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the avenues within your suite that investors can access venture capital type investments. Uh, and sure. as you said, not, not necessarily of the, the hype assets, but, but, you know, industrial automation is an exciting uh, example to talk about because, you know, it, the industrial investment in technology was really, I mean, it was underinvested for, for, uh, quite some time, maybe at least a, a five or six or seven year lag. And, and so there's a lot of pent up opportunity in that space, uh, as companies start to spend more money on, on technology and and um, infrastructure itself, tech, you know, in terms of automation. Um, I think, I think you know, COVID really, uh, the, the pandemic really highlighted all of that as well. But those aren't, those private opportunities are not available in the public marketplace. And, you know, by the time you hear about something exciting, you know, it's already, it's already, you know, typically valued well beyond comfort levels, right? And so when you, when you have an opportunity to get in to, you know, private businesses of any kind that have that hold, you know, great promise, um, it's a lot more exciting to do that at a, at a lower valuation than at, than at what could be deemed to be a high valuation. Uh, as it's so often, you know, when people get involved in IPOs, companies going public for the first time and, and have never had an opportunity to be, to be in at the, at, you know, somewhere between the seed and IPO level, um, you often paying very dearly for it. And that's not a strategy that, that really sits well with most high net worth investors or pensions or endowments. You know, why would I buy a business as it goes public? Um, you know, I'd much rather explore the opportunities at, at the, uh, at the ground, you know, or, you know, closer to the ground level. Well, that's what and, I find um, too is actually resonates quite well with both advisors and investors is in the private markets, it's more personal. The money that right. you're investing, you know where it's going. You know the companies, the GP that's working on these uh, on these deals is integrated into the companies. They are part of these companies. And as an investor, you can say that you were part of that growth. And I think that that really does resonate. You end up having ownership over it more so than if you're just buying a stock exchange. Yeah, it has more impact and it, it, um, it, you know, it's more impactful, but it also has more impact on, on the investor mindset. I, I I'm curious, you know, our advisors, when they bring up the subject themselves, as opposed to being asked about it, when advisors are bringing up private equity or private, private assets to their, their high net worth, uh, clients, are they seeing, uh, like an aha moment where, where, you know, you know, the client says, oh, I, I wondered when you'd come to me with this, or I wondered if you've ever, if you would ever come to me with this, um, you know, and, and now it's available, right? It's now, now advisors can actually say, you know, I have, you know, we have a channel where, where, you know, we can, we can, you know, bring you into, uh, the private market. And, uh, yeah, Pierre, I, I, I would say that the openness to the conversation has probably been there for a long time from the investor standpoint, maybe even more so in an right. uncertain environment like today. But when it comes, when the advisor, for the advisor to have the confidence to get into that space, the obvious question that the investor would, uh, would ask is, okay, I am interested. How do I buy it? And then the advisor has to go through all the nuances of, okay, you want to invest a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. Great, but you're not actually investing that. You're committing that, and at some point in the next three to five years, that's going to get drawn. I can't tell you when. It depends on whether they find when they find something to buy, and and that thing is going to be really good. And you know that they're going to do a great job, but it's hard to project even how that investment plays out. Once they buy that thing, and it's not one thing; it's probably ten to thirty things. Right. There's also going to be a series of sales and recapitalizations and events that will have money show up in your account at some point between now and 13 years from now. Like it, it's it's a very it's a very um, unnatural discussion for somebody to have who's been used to advising their clients and building wealth in a certain way. And so that's part yeah. of what makes us so excited about these new formats that um, you can buy it not so different from how you would buy a mutual fund. Um, you could sell it when is appropriate to sell. You don't have to wait for 
the next great investment. Uh, your money gets pulled when you want to invest and it gets right. uh, spread out over a diversified pool that's global. So you, you really do invest, you don't commit. And, and so it, by eliminating so there, a, there a lot of there those barriers. <clears throat> there, to, to, there aren't onerous lockups. There aren't, you know, like you don't have. You, that, that, that's right. It, 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 yeah. it, it, now, where people should be wary, you know, we talked about the three different formats or the three different objectives, return enhancers, uh, income generators, and diversifiers. Diversifiers in your core, we would highly recommend that you ensure that there's a, a, a basis of liquidity and valuation that seems fair and appropriate. When you're talking about the return enhancers, fundamentally you're buying companies not tomorrow, but when the time makes the most sense, when you found the right asset, when you found the right price, and you're selling it once the value creation program has been had a chance to, to uh, you know, to, to, to do the thing that it's supposed to do, and it's being sold at some point in the future, you don't want to rush timing. You don't want to force money yeah. in too early, and you don't want to force money out too early, and you don't want to hold on too long. And so when you're thinking about your return enhancers, and that's part of the reason why it probably belongs for most investors as a satellite as opposed to a core, you really need to accept that you're dealing with a longer time horizon investor experience. Um, it, and that, that, you know, we can get to that in building a portfolio um, with advisors that make sense uh, uh, for clients. But that's the part that we would be very cautious for investors who are thinking about a private equity solution um, other than the, uh, as a rule, would think, uh, be very cautious about a private equity solution that needs to hold companies for a long period of time that promises liquidity in in a way that doesn't match up with the thing that they're buying and the value that they're creating. Yeah, it, it's, you know, reminds me of a conversation we had on this, on this, on the podcast with uh, another asset manager. And, and, you know, it was about entrepreneur, it was about the entrepreneurial mindset, which is that, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with um, ultra high net worth, entrepreneurial individuals or families, um, you know, the, they're not thinking about, I mean, there is an element of where the entrepreneur, entrepreneur who has, uh, you know, amassed a certain amount of wealth is thinking about, you know, how do I make this, how do I make this more? Um, but it's not the, it's not their primary objective. Their primary objective is how do I, how do I keep it and, and grow it for as long as possible and, and keep it in my family and keep it in my family for, for, you know, more than two generations or more than three generations. And, and so, um, the last thing that, you know, one thing I, from, from my experience as an advisor was that, you know, with entrepreneurial clients that I had, they were, they were already in their own minds taking all of the entrepreneurial risk that they were taking, allocating to their businesses growing their companies, um, you know, and, and of course the most natural place for them to put more of their investment was into themselves, into their companies. And so there was an aversion to investing in, uh, a lot of their wealth in public markets because, because of that control factor, you know, that, that, that idea that, you know, um, Things can go wrong very quickly in the stock market. Things can go wrong, uh, you know, in the bond market as well. And if I've got all my assets, my family wealth in publicly traded assets and everything goes into the tank, the economy goes into the tank, you know, my business might suffer as well. And then I might find myself wanting my assets or wanting some of my wealth to shore up needs in my business at the same time. And then you have a double whammy, right? Your business is down, your wealth is down. And so, 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 you know, full circle, that mindset is, is way more conservative. And that's why, you know, these, these types of assets were created to be differentiated pools of, of wealth where, where you weren't going to be subject to the whims of the market and, and, and also provide the complement to that 
traditional stock bond portfolio that, you know, that you want to have alongside with these assets. But, that's, um, a, that's a great point. And, and as, as you know, Pierre, the, the um, portfolios aren't constructed with absolutes in mind. And when you are dealing with that high net worth um, or just, you know, math affluent advisor and you're in your, you're wondering, or the sorry, investor, um, you do want to understand what their objectives are. You do want to understand what they need to live off of that. You need to understand how they want to spend their retirement. You do need to understand what their values are and, and what they want to leave to the next generation. And that's, that really fits into the different buckets. Like if you're talking about retirement, you're thinking more about income. You're talking about next generation. You're thinking about more about return enhancers. And if you're thinking about something that just complements public markets in in the um, in the best possible way, you're thinking about diversifiers. So it, it's not necessarily a story of, of absolutes. It's it's the uh, it, it's in the texture of really understanding the values of your and objectives of the investors that you can find probably the right answers to the allocation question for them. Right. And that, I mean, that would be a very customized discussion, very, you know, personal discussion and, and, and negotiation in terms of, you know, working through, you know, all of your clients sort of integral objectives. And that, that Pierre, that, right? that's our, our, yeah. our advice to investors who are, who uh, are thinking about, uh, private markets is to work closely with your advisor. Um, even as, as products become easier to buy, advice is almost more more essential than than ever um, because you do have the chance to buy some of these things. Like if you look again at the return enhancer category, the difference between a first quartile performer and a third quartile can be pretty dramatic. We're talking 35% IRR versus maybe um, uh, scratching to break even, right? So choosing the right manager, building a portfolio, not just taking one position, but thinking about this in terms of the core and satellite. And I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, that's, that's really what we would encourage investors to do in close consultation with their advisors. Right. And you're, you're also available Absolutely. in terms of, of helping them navigate the conversations, helping them navigate the knowledge that's required, uh, helping them gain the sophistication and, and awareness of, of, of what and how it all works. That's you're, what you're I available. spend all my time yeah. doing. So I work, <laughs> I work very closely with advisors. I work very closely with their, with their investors. And that's part of the value add with BMO GAM is that you do have an entire team, you know, support, educate, uh, just help out and to bring red markets to the masses. Excellent. Pro probably the most fun part of the job, Pierre, is, is, yeah. is, being a part of those aha moments and um, helping families and helping uh, advisors um, achieve great benefits uh, in their long in the long run planning. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that's I think that's probably the most satisfying aspect of the work is is actually creating you know finding solutions and then and then having them see and then seeing seeing them come to fruition, seeing them work. Uh, is very, very satisfying. So, you know, it's not hard to understand why advisors are so careful about how they allocate, uh, increasingly careful. I mean, it's this, you know, things, the market has become increasingly complex um, and and uh, the available options is what is making it more complex and being able to navigate those those options is, is critical. Um, so I, I wanted to come back to something you said earlier jeff which was you 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 were talking about the 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 way that um you know how the allocations how allocations to private equity private credit real estate and infrastructure have historically improved the performance of portfolios and you have a you have a terrific chart in your deck which we'll put up uh in lieu of what you're about to say just to um you know, it's the, it's, it's, you know, it's the chart, right? It's the chart of, of, uh, volatility on one side and return on, 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 sorry, volatility on the bottom axis and, and, uh, return on the, um, vertical axis. But, you know, it's, it's, 
it's 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 great to see you know how i mean i i love the the illustration's perfect because it shows exactly how a transformation of allocations you know a a, re, a shifting of allocations from from purely public markets to adding an allocation to private markets uh, and some blend of of allocation to private markets um changes the uh, lowered not only lowers volatility but enhances returns so you have that you have you have that move from you know am I, am I am i in the right direction you have the move from from here which is the uh you know bottom from the you know from the the lower right to the upper left right or or maybe it's this way depending on which way the video goes right but that's that's the that's the ideal that's that's that uh, efficient frontier um you know, method all or way of, 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 uh, determining, you know, why would I do this? So, so can you, do you want to, can you, can you explain how that works? Well, what, maybe, what, or maybe what, I just what did. We, well, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think you did an excellent job, but what we really like about that chart is that no matter when you start, if you take a long enough time horizon, um, you'll note that in, no matter whether you start heavily weighted towards equity or heavily weighted towards debt in all cases by including a well-constructed alternative um, uh, basket within your portfolio you end up moving your volatility down and that's a proxy for risk they end up reducing the risk of your portfolio improving the certainty of performance but moving to the left and then you also end up improving your return um, and that that was a bit of an eye opener to us. We thought that uh, we we understood the risk part, but but no matter where you start, that your returns also go up. It really shows you the uh, the power of of uh, diversification in the construct of a portfolio. Now again, that isn't we're not saying go out and buy one alternative product to get to twenty percent of your portfolio. We're, we're saying build a core, um, add satellite around that. And and really work with your advisor to come up with the best best mix and the best timing um, for you to end up in, in in a position where you do really enjoy those benefits. Does it? Do you do you have any? Um, how often do concerns about about uh, tracking error come up? I mean, I know this this the tracking error discussion comes up a lot in lieu of you know liquid alternatives. But how does that work when when you're when you're um, examining tracking error versus you know a private private equity private credit real estate infrastructure mix against a traditional portfolio? How do, how do you how do you, how would you address that? When it when it comes to private credit, it's pretty straightforward because uh, private credit products tend to be priced on a floating rate basis, so you don't have interest rate risk, and the measure of success is basically the strength of your collateral. So what are, what's the loss rate against the loans that you put out? And over time, a long period of time, we've seen that private credit um, has had very modest losses. If you, you choose a reasonable manager and a reasonable strategy, you're going to be in a reasonable spot, and you're going to get the benefits of, of changes in the interest rate environment uh, that you get from a floating rate product. When you look at private equity, um, Valuation is, of course, very, very important. But the beauty of private equity is you can actually um, poke into the portfolio companies and look at the underlying performance. So are they improving revenues? Are they managing costs? The net result of that is your cash flow, and EBITDA is a great proxy that's often used. And so right. so you, what you want to see is a long track record of performance where you're able to improve the cash flow of those companies when um, under the ownership of the manager you're investing in. And what was going to change environmentally is the multiples that get attributed to those. So the the, the most important uh, uh, basis of of, um, of diligence from our standpoint is understanding the value creation um, formula. How do they do it? Is it repeatable? And if it is repeatable, right. you can look on a quarterly basis and see what impact they have had on a on a company's underlying cash flows and yes the the environment is going to impact the multiples that you ascribe to those but as a, a private equity investor you're thinking not across quarters or days you're thinking across years and the, the beauty of having 
the investment period as long as it is, is you've got guild managers with interests that are aligned with yours who pick the right deal to exit the investments that uh, that you're in. So you mentioned you mentioned sort of piercing the veil and, and looking looking at the individual holdings. Is that similar to what Warren Buffett has referred to as look through, look through earnings, look through numbers where, 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 you know, like, for example, I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a discussion about Warren Buffett, but, but <laughs> you know, obviously his company owns uh, a vast number of businesses within a publicly traded, you know, within this Berkshire Hathaway vehicle, but, but at any, you know, in any given year, you're able to look at all the individual holdings and how they stack up against the total so that the sum of the parts are greater than the whole in some cases, right? I think there's a lot in common with the, the, uh, with Warren Buffett's philosophy of buying great companies with exceptional management teams that have the capacity to grow, that have profit mode. Like that's right. what private equity managers do at a micro scale. They buy good companies. They are the management team. We should think of them as the management team in the same way that Warren Buffett might, who add a tremendous amount of value through, you know, again, are you choosing the right ones through their value creation program? And they hold it um, until the company has achieved some stabilized level of, of growth, or they are just, you know, too big for the fund which is a, a great outcome of, of value creation. Yeah. And then the next buyer will pick it up and do something great with it too. So either it trades to another private equity company or a strategic buyer, or maybe it goes public. We don't see a ton of companies going public, especially in this market environment. And um, But they don't need to because there's a, a ton of financing through private credit and private equity to um, to sustain the the vast majority of the real economy. And do you, do you provide the, the, that look through information to your investors? It, it, it Are, really will depend on, on the nature of the, of the, uh, the strategy and the fund. It is, okay. re, it is, uh, conventional to have in the reporting packages, the underlying drivers of performance with commentary from the manager. How do, how do recent trends in impact investing and ESG integration influence uh, the investment opportunities and strategies within uh, private equity, private credit, real estate, and infrastructure for, for your investors? So it, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great question. Um, ESG are you know, a variety of different concepts <laughs> that, um, that, that are, are put together for reasons that are easy to understand. But if you pull them apart um, and you think about the, the power and flexibility that active ownership provides you um, through, through private equity, you can really achieve some amazing outcomes. A uh, couple of examples come to mind. There's a manager who we work closely with um, who was looking at a European toy company. And they thought, a great company. They couldn't believe the valuation that they were able to buy it at. And they were trying to explain to themselves, like, how could this be? How is it that we can get such a great deal? It's an open market and there was a process. How can we get such a great deal? And the conclusion that they came to is that there was a real discount because of their environmental record. They used packaging that was not particularly efficient. The toys that they created, while beautiful with a, with a devoted uh, uh, audience, um, they were not recyclable and they also didn't use recycled input. Um, and so there was a penalty, and the penalty in Europe plays out through a tax that gets charged on based on the size and weight of your packaging, and also based on having uh, products that aren't environmentally friendly. So their value creation program involved improving the product, improving the environmental footprint of the product, from the easy stuff like reformulating the package, packaging to the to the hard stuff like changing the plastic formulation. They brought in environment. They brought in. Uh, um, um, material science, scientists to help with this, they reformulated the product so that when it's achieved its, its uh, useful life, it can be recycled. And now what they're working on, their third neck of value creation, again, talking about sustainability in the environment, is making it so that the inputs into that toy are also recycled material. So you truly get the value of the circular economy. The ability to develop a value creation 
program that is so bespoke and then to see it through not over you know weeks or months or quarters but years that's something that's really um special about private ownership you mentioned infrastructure infrastructure is a great mm -hmm. example as well too because when you own infrastructure companies privately you're not only thinking about the long-term contracted cash flow that make infrastructure a valuable investment you're also thinking about a scalable platform so for we've got a uh, an infrastructure solution that provides community solar your growth plan could involve finding other communities where this would make sense adding panels uh, improving the way that electricity transfers from the the creation to the transmission there's lots of things that you can do to scale platforms to add more value and to really chip away at the e problem the 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 uh climate related opportunity that needs to get addressed in order for uh, the world to spin the way that we've uh, grown accustomed to it spinning so private ownership lots of degrees of freedom you don't have to think about quarters you can really dig in and have value creation programs that really get at uh sustainability in the environment really get at uh, uh you know labor and uh in 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 the broader relations where you might be buying a discount until that's been appropriately ad ad addressed and there's no better example of active ownership than having the manager effectively control the board and uh and uh, you know drive the future drive the agenda of that company as it works to achieve its potential there's something there's something very calming about about all this you know it, it's not it's not like I, I i liked your remark about you know the quarters not having to worry about quarters everything is always you know earnings reports quarterly reporting you know and and it, it's too short it's too short of a time for for businesses in reality i mean and 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 so you can see where where you know um this would behave very differently from from the day-to-day -day gyrations or quarterly gyrations in the stock market, um, could see where it has a great deal of appeal to the entrepreneurial class as well of investors. Um, it's, it's a great question, Pierre, with with for an advisor to ask in an, an investor to say, "Okay, tell me about your business and, and and how you created value, whether they work for a publicly traded company or not, and just draw on a sheet of paper." What are the things that you can improve in the next quarter? What are the things that you can improve in the next year? Yeah. What are the things that you can improve with the five to seven year time horizon and patient and supportive capital behind you? And you're going to find that the things that can really change the, the shape of the business can take it from a good company to a great company don't exist in that quarter time horizon, probably don't exist in that year time horizon. And all of that really gets you to part of the magic of a long-term ownership with uh with you know really engaged governance and great expertise being uh being added to uh to, to how companies operate and that's the magic of private equity yeah and so if you do value esg and governance um those are things that are inherent to private markets to your point right <laughs> This has been a, a terrific discussion. I, I, I have to say, like, it's been very enlightening for me. I hope, you know, the same is true for advisors and, and, and other listeners. What I'm most excited about right now is that there's an opportunity to actually invest in private markets like never before. And being able to give access to uh, Canadians, to things that were traditionally only for institutions, is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about, excited about. And I think that the only way that uh, these type of products will get into the hands of investors is an educated sales force and making sure that uh, the resources are available for advisors to have meaningful discussions with their investors and with their clients. Terrific. I have Jeff? zero to add to that. That was perfectly <laughs> Why don't Why don't we... Why, As why, if, why Jeff, you we, always have something to add. Come mic. on, you can do it. <laughs> this really is a special time for... Uh, for private markets, it is the right solution for today. It's the right solution uh, for the future. Um, there is nuance in introducing the concept and uh, bringing out the benefits within your client's portfolio. 
we would love the opportunity to get to know you and your practice and uh, to help you along that path. Excellent. Lillian, Jeff, thank you both so much for your incredibly valuable time and insight. It's been terrific chatting with you. And you, you too, Pierre. Thank you. Thanks, Pierre. We look you. forward to the next one. <laughs>